0: Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, we're going to collaborate with the Dr. Joe Show, of which I'm a co-host, This was an amazing episode, and I really wanted to share it with you in case you hadn't already heard it. Please enjoy.
1: It's been a really rough opening to 2023. A lot of stuff going on, not just uh, here in Massachusetts, but all over. So with that in mind, Tom, could you please introduce our guests for tonight as we begin our
2: discussion? Absolutely. Tonight, Dr. Joe, we have two returning guests, Marshfield's Chief Tavares and Morning Fox. Morning Fox has over 30 years of experience in the mental health field and was the deputy commissioner of the Vermont Department of Mental Health for four and a half years. He is currently the first director of mental health programs for the Vermont Department of Public Safety, where he implemented and coordinates the Embedded Mental Health Crisis Specialist Program, where mental health workers correspond with the state police. Fox has worked with the FBI in Special Operations Tactical. He was the first non-correctional officer appointed as a hostage negotiator for the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. He has been certified as an NAPPI, that's Non-Abusive Psychological and Physical Interventions Instructor, a CPI, Crisis Prevention Institute Trainer, and a Mental Health First Aid Trainer. Chief Tavares started working for the Marshfield Police Department in 1988 as an assistant animal control officer, and in 1990, he was assigned as first assistant harpermaster, and later acting harpermaster. In 1994, he became a full-time Marshfield police officer. He was promoted to sergeant in 1999, lieutenant in 2002, captain in 2008, and chief of police in 2012. And prior to becoming a full-time police officer, he was a social worker for the Department of Social Services in Boston for nearly two years. Welcome back to the Dr. Joe Show. Wow. That's, those wow. are two impressive human beings, Dr. Joe. How Woo. did you get them on your show?
1: Hell yeah, man. That's <laughs> there's, that's a lot of stuff going on there, both of you. Chief, yes. I can't believe it's it's been 10 years? Yeah, it's 10 and, been... and a half years. Yes, crazy. Wow. Wow. And Fox out there in Vermont. How long have you been up in Vermont now?
3: So this, this stint of Vermont, because we did Vermont, we left Vermont came back to Massachusetts for a while now, back in Vermont, but we've been back here now since 2012. So just yeah. over 10 years now.
1: Wow. Really honored to have both of you here. And, and I'm hoping I can hear how the two of you interact around what is going on right now. There's a lot of stuff going on about the police in the news right now. I just wonder how that's influencing both of your positions. So let me start with with you, Fox, embedded mental health. Tell us a little bit about
3: that. So about a year and a half ago, as I was leaving the Department of Mental Health and looking for some changes there, the commissioner for the Department of Public Safety approached me and said, look, I'm looking to create this position. And I can't think of anyone other than you that I'd, I'd want to do this because I'd worked with them with then Commissioner Shirling quite frequently through my work within the community mental health system here in Department of Mental Health. But Commissioner Sherling was really very focused on modernizing and changing how policing happens in Vermont and the Department of Public Safety. The Vermont State Police is under our purview. All the local municipal police departments are not part of, you know, underneath the commissioner. So he has kind of direct oversight and control of how the state police operates. And he wanted us to to be better adept at helping people manage crises and that law enforcement officers with some training that they received X number of years ago in the Academy, possibly with some, you know, continuing education along the way, but that's no substitute for people who make careers out of working in the mental health field or uh, people with lived experience and such. And so he tasked me with creating this program. And so in Vermont we have 10 barracks that cover the entire state and we now have 9 out of the 10 barracks have at least one embedded uh, mental health crisis person uh, that works there and you know it's it's a start it's it's not a perfect perfect system yet you know i've done you know so much research and just looking at all the, the various models that are out there you know, you have the CAHOOTS model from Eugene, Oregon and, you know, the Denver Star program and myriads of others. But it just seems to work for us right now, at least, having embedded folks within State police, so that they can co-respond with troopers when someone's in crisis. And I try and stay away from describing it as a mental health crisis per se, just because we all experience crises. And if you start to throw labels and terms around, some people can be put off by it and create stigma, bias, etc. We all experience crisis, and no one debates that. But if I say, "Oh, you're having a mental health crisis," that can be a barrier to someone wanting to kind of connect with someone. And so we really. Drove for and made sure that the people we are hiring for these positions, it didn't matter what letters they have after their name. You know whether they have master's degree, PhD, bachelor's degree, license, all those kind of things. Because we're not looking to bill insurance companies. We just want to make sure we have people who are good with other people, who can connect, build a relationship quickly, and help problem solve through that. And by doing that, we can help prevent people from unnecessarily having to go to the emergency room waiting there, unnecessary things of that sort. And also just how do we help provide them the resources and the supports that they need so that they can be safe and positive members of our society? You know, that's that's the ultimate goal. And so we really strove for looking for people who have what I call it you know, that can really just connect with people and really do that type of work. And so that's what we've done. The workforce issues that everyone is struggling with in every sector is hitting us as well. I would love to be able to sit here and say every barrack has has an embedded worker. And, you know, we're working on two or three now, you know, et cetera. But it's actually just difficult at times trying to get folks
1: Apply and and show up. So, Chief, does this resonate with you? What Fox is talking about?
4: Uh, It certainly does, Uh, and it's uh, it's a great idea, and uh, it's on the cutting edge. And uh, eventually, I think uh, you'll see the whole country go that way. There's five particular areas that we I believe that uh, we work with or work within to address people that are in crisis. The first one is we have an emergency nubba to the children and family services. And they will provide, uh, if available, an emergency response. They will come out to a scene. Uh, if we're at somebody's house uh, and somebody needs to uh, be uh, spoken to over the phone or in person, uh, they'll come out and do an emergency response. We also have the Plymouth County Outreach uh, Program, uh, and there's two parts to that. Uh, part A is for uh, substance abuse, and Part B is for anybody that has any type of uh, mental health type issues. And they are, uh, do follow up uh, with a mental health licensed mental health clinician along with a plain closed police officer. We'll go to the house and do follow-up work, but we also will do uh, proactive work and put people that are potentially um, at risk in for a referral uh, where they'll be uh, reached out by a, a licensed mental health clinician and uh, be given uh, treatment options. Uh, we just received a grant, uh, and we're in the process of um, sitting down and having meetings. I teamed up with the town of Norwell, and... Uh, Duxbury and um, you know you a know, couple of the most recent uh, terrible things happened both in Marshfield and in Duxbury but we've got a grant it's about $100,000 and it should renew itself every single year there'll be a uh, full-time licensed mental health clinician stationed here at the Marshfield Police Department, they'll have an office. They'll work out of here, but uh, they'll also work in the communities of Norwell and in Duxbury. Uh, And then uh, one of the last things, well, second to last is we uh, believe in the One Mind campaign, according to the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And uh, that uh, involves training 100% of your department in mental health first aid, and 20% of your offices, which we have already done in uh, crisis intervention training. So those offices are spread out amongst the, the uh, shifts that uh, we have here, and those crisis intervention trained offices, 40-hour 40, 40 training for each officer, they go on all calls when somebody's in crisis. And then lastly, we also have the ability to put somebody commonly known as the pink slip uh, under Chapter 123, Section 12, if somebody's a danger to themselves or so to others through reason of mental illness, uh, we can take them into, you know, custody, not for criminal reasons and transport them to an emergency room where they can be examined by a physician. So that's basically the five main areas that we're working on right now, Uh, but I do see what Morning Fox is uh, speaking of happening um, all across the country because it's desperately needed.
0: Chief, can can I jump in here, Dr. Joe? And and I'm not suggesting that you're a a mental health professional, but as chief of the department, can you give us a guesstimate of what percentage of events that your officers go to are either based on some form of mental health or substance abuse disorder?
4: Well, you know, I've always said that it's close to 90% of our calls for service are alcohol or drug related and a lot of these a lot of people that are in crisis are self medicating right and it just it's led to other things
3: yeah i would i would actually add to that so before i add to it just chief i just want to compliment you on getting your staff cit trained i know that's a difficult task for many departments especially smaller departments it's a 40 hour training as you mentioned and trying to free up your officers in order to do that is tremendous and great dedication, and I applaud you for that. That's really incredible. And we're doing some of those things here too, you know, CIT in some areas of the state and things of that sort. But You know, Mark, you had asked about like percentage of calls that are either substance use related or mental health related. There's a lot of different statistics nationally, anywhere from ten to fifty percent are documented as mental health related and even higher for substance use related. The way I look at it though is that it's like like the chief said, like ninety percent of the calls have one or the other involved and even when they don't it's there i talk about having our embedded folks they go out to motor vehicle accidents you know not calls that are just suicidal person or someone acting in a bizarre fashion or an intoxicated individual those they'll go with troopers to a to a motor vehicle accident because if you've ever been in a serious car accident that's really stressful that's very traumatizing and then You have the issues of if it's a really severe accident, maybe there's a death involved. You have the survivors who may be having survivor guilt and, you know, any of those other things. You know, people listen to scanners. And so you have family members showing up on scenes and, you know, things of that sort. And so the embedded workers can help manage on scene, but also provide some of that support to some of those individuals in that moment that can get them connected with other supports so that a week or two down the line, that's not a person that's showing up in your local emergency room because they're having thoughts of suicide because of survivor guilt or they can't sleep and intrusive nightmares and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so even though it's not documented as mental health, they all are there.
1: Right. I mean, I mean, I think if you're getting the police involved, there's the potential of it being pretty traumatic. And
0: you had mentioned something that I picked up on because it's something that we've mentioned a bunch on the Dr. Joe show. It's um, the lack of mental health helpers and the barrier of entry and the amount of degrees and all of this that one must get in order to, to be part of that community. But I heard you say something, and it's resonating with me, is that the, the folks that could be embedded in these police departments don't necessarily need to have the acronyms after their name and the degrees, the certifications, because we're not requesting reimbursement from an insurance company. So who can apply to do this? And what, what would it take? And what are the qualifications and the training associated sure. with that?
3: When we developed this, there was a group of folks who came together to develop the job specifications, the job description, onboarding, all of those kind of things. And with input from the advocate community, people with lived experience, people who would describe themselves maybe as psychiatric survivors, things of that sort. And we wanted to make sure that the individuals in these positions, that we try to lower as many of the potential barriers as possible to them being able to connect with individuals. Because if you're in a crisis and a, and an officer or a trooper shows up, there's a barrier to people wanting to be honest and open because they're afraid of being taken into custody, whether it be for illegal actions or for protective custody, similar to a licensed professional that could do, you know, as as chief mentioned, you know, do a pink paper or section 12 or something of that sort. Again. That's a barrier to wanting to actually connect with someone and say, sure, I'll be open and honest with you about how I'm feeling for fear of you could lose your civil liberties because people are concerned for your safety. And so what we looked at was we wanted individuals who could just connect with people. And so we have of the of the 10 folks that we have hired right now that are doing this work, we have everything from people with no college education and like pastoral counseling on up to master's degrees with license. The ultimate piece that we're looking for when we do the job interviews and such is it's the person who can meet you where you're at, treat you with respect, and build that rapport. Because in the end, the ultimate goal of any of these positions, of any of this work, is we're really trying to influence someone's behavior. You know, if they're in a crisis that it's come to the attention of law enforcement— Clearly, their behavior is causing concerns for people, whether it's for their own safety, others, et cetera. And so we're looking to influence that behavior so that they can remain in the community safely uh, as much as possible. When you have these barriers of, I don't want to talk to you because you could take away my civil rights, you could write a pink paper, you could arrest me, people are not going to be open about how they're truly feeling, whether they're you know having psychotic symptoms or whether they're feeling suicidal or things of that sort or are actively using. And so in, these individuals, we have folks who have had psychiatric hospitalizations themselves in the past are now working in these positions. So it's a, it's a wide range, but we have a broad panel that does the interviewing That includes folks from the mental health system, folks from the law enforcement system, as well as folks from the advocate and peer community. So, is there a core curriculum that you're providing for them, a training? Yeah. So the interesting thing is that the way it's it's working right now is that the money is coming from the Department of Public Safety. And when they first started doing this, you know, I, I was actually at the Department of Mental Health. And there's there was no official mental health person, if you will, within the state police or public safety. And so we wanted to make sure these people had access to good clinical supervision and training. So actually what we do is the Department of Public Safety grants out the money to each community mental health center uh, throughout the state. They then advertise, hire, and these people are hired separately. They're not state employees working for us. They're working for the individual community mental health center where uh-huh. they receive clinical supervision, some training with other other clinicians. Then they receive added training and added you a know, couple of days of training with us specific to these positions learning some law enforcement things you know as far as like you know scene safety implicit bias you know fair and impartial policing you know and getting exposed and understanding some of these other pieces of law enforcement that they wouldn't get just kind of from the mental health side and then we have ongoing trainings every other month with them we do intensive trainings role plays etc and we really set it up so that they have a lot of supports to make sure that this is successful so they receive their clinical supervision from their community mental health center i set up for them to do group supervision together with myself and then they also have peer supervision where they have a safe place for them to talk about kind of the stresses and the type of stuff that happens that maybe their their peers or coworkers at a uh, at the community mental health center wouldn't quite understand because they're not you know working out of a barrack you know that kind of thing so there's a lot of supervision and guidance around this as well
0: is there enough data to
3: speak to how the troopers are reacting to it? Yeah, I think it's it's happened every barrack. The first response is, oh, so now I have another civilian I have to worry about and maintain and keep safe. You know, And chief, you'll have the same thing. If you ever get to embedded folks, your officers are gonna be like, really, you want me to take a civilian with me? I already have to worry about the safety of the people who I'm responding to, but now I have a civilian I have to worry about as well. And that's the, the initial sense, every barrack. This is 100% of the time. Within two to four weeks, uh, everyone says, can we get two more? Um, Just because they then realize, oh, this really works. They make my job as an officer so much easier. I love it. Yeah. I love that. So,
1: Chief is there a way for an actual officer to also communicate that sense of trust and safety
4: well yeah uh, through the training the uh the cit uh offices that are uh you know on on staff at the time. What I is
1: CIT? Been... What is CIT actually? The it's the
4: crisis intervention teams. Okay. So, okay. so uh, that's part of the One Mind campaign through the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Is that you have 100% of your staff uh, trained in mental health first aid and 20% trained as CIT crisis. Intervention uh, team members, so they could do that as well. But this grant that we got with the social, the licensed mental health care provider that will be working here, uh, will be going on ride-alongs. They will be embedded. That will be happening in Marshfield, uh, in
1: uh, Norwell, and in
4: Duxbury.
1: Yeah, And, and I think that's great. But does it does it beg the question, which is, you know, there's this whole idea of police reform. My phrase is police rethink instead of reforming police. Let's rethink police. And I, I think that there's a, a movement towards that because we just saw something where some police hurt another person and killed them. I can't believe that's in the, the training manual of, of a policeman.
4: <clears throat> so my, my take on that is, is this, is that I'll always advocate for better training, better policies and procedures, better laws. But if you're hiring the wrong people, to do the job, no matter what training you give them or what the laws are, what the policies and procedures are. If you're hiring the wrong people, they will deviate. All those officers had body cameras on. They knew that everything was being recorded. In my opinion, you have to hire good people to do this job. Not everybody can be a police officer. Not everybody should be a police officer. There's a certain skill set that you should have and a certain set that you shouldn't have. And If you're hiring good people with common sense, that are intelligent, that uh, that can control their tempers, that know how to de-escalate rather than escalate, uh, you'll, do, you'll have a much better outcome as opposed to uh, you know, we saw this, it, 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 this is just history repeating itself. We we saw this before the civil rights movement in the 70s, when they used to hire big, strong cops to go into the barrooms and just break up the fights. And uh, in here in Massachusetts, we saw that people's rights were being trampled, people were being abused. So the need for an educated officer uh, was there. So that's why they started the Quinn Bill, where it was an educational incentive for an officer to earn an extra 10%, 20% or 25% of their base salary if they earn an associate bachelor's or master's degree. So uh, we have a highly educated police department here, and I I think that um, that's uh, extremely helpful. Uh, Intelligent people, uh, that's the first step in in the hiring process. But uh, going back to the whole, you know, uh, like I said, I advocate for the best training, the best laws, the best policies and procedures, but it starts with hiring the right people to do the job. You're hiring good people, and, um, you know, hopefully you'll have good results, at least better results than what we've seen in the past in some of these situations.
0: Yeah like all good businesses it's it's the reflection of leadership right so at somewhere there was a breakdown in memphis right you, you say you hire but who's hiring these the, these yeah. people who's who's assessing them for are they the right people for the job or is there a cultural breakdown within the organization now i'm proud to say that you're leading our community because i know as a business person the reputation of the entire organization is based on leadership. So, uh, you know, I don't have any understanding of what went down in Memphis, but there's a breakdown in leadership. Sounds like there was a
4: breakdown in a lot of different areas. And uh, I don't want to speculate, but uh, yeah, I would agree with you. And, and and the hiring procedure or process seems to be different for the Scorpion unit unit that uh, caused yeah. the problem. Well,
3: mm-hmm. it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that Scorpion unit chief, which I know has now been disbanded, but CIT originated there. Uh, in memphis that's where uh, cit originally started and so that boggles me just one extra level that the home of cit which is this great model is is interesting that it seems like it's just if if you're in cit great but if not then it's you know neither do the two connect or something i you know how that breakdown happened is beyond me all on
4: camera
0: right oh yeah
3: Hold on camera.
0: Was this a rogue organization or was this a known like, special ops division within the police department, if anyone knows?
4: It's it's my understanding that it, it was a specialized uh, group of people uh, that were put together as an anti-crime uh, task force. So it was not a, a rogue group of people. They were specialized and then they were, their assignment was uh, an anti-crime task force.
3: Huh. And they commit crimes. Right.
1: Morning Fox, you, you got some thoughts about this?
3: No, it's just I was just agreeing with the chief that that was my understanding as well. That this Scorpion unit, as they termed it, was just a special operations unit for those hotspots, things of that sort. You know, I think one of the things we're doing here in Vermont is you know doing hot maps and looking at where are the hotspots of criminal activity and you know things of that sort. And I think this unit would be used at times to the way I understand it to be deployed to certain hotspots. Uh, to try and deal with, or be a better, bigger presence in places where there's uh, greater criminal
1: activity. It's it certainly is about training. I, I'm just curious, Chief. I mean, I. I know what we have here in Marshfield. I know how incredible leadership we have here and the community policing and the folks that, that we have, I don't consider it a police force. It's not a force at all. It's, it's a police collaborative. I mean, we have folks who just, I feel so comfortable around them. It, you know, I think a lot of people, the uniform can can give people, both who are seeing it, a sense of mistrust, a sense of anxiety, and I think for the folks that we were talking about a sense of invulnerability that you are the law, but above it at the same time. Chief, how, how do we, how do, how, well, how is this like for you having the uniform? So sir, Robert Peel
4: said it way back at the beginning of policing, that the people are the police and the police are the people. We're one and the same, we're one and the same. And the police aren't above the law, you know, and we should be held to a higher standard. And, you know, the spotlight is on us now and, uh, Unfortunately, I, I think that uh, recruitment and retention is going to be, continue to be a problem and that it'll be something that turns away intelligent people of common sense that we would like to have. Um, so I'm just I'm, I'm hopeful that you know, this was a, a noble profession that people took pride in. I'd like to get that back. And uh, when we do get that back, hopefully we'll have uh, more people interested in the job because right now it's not as desirable as it was in the past. It's a very difficult job.
1: But because of the perception that other people have of it? Because of
4: the perception, because of being under the microscope, the spotlight always being shined on you, the uh, ability to not only lose um, your house and your job, but potentially your life. Hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of hazards. There's a lot of negatives to the job besides you know, working weekends, nights, and holidays and missing, you know, your kids' sporting events and and, and all those other things. I think that at some point, and this might be for another show, but the mental health and mental well-being of those offices mm. uh, that have been responding countless times um, to traumatic events, uh, what they witnessed themselves, you know, what's going on with them, what type of help are, are they getting or receiving or what's offered to them, what type of time off do they have. There's, there's an awful lot uh, involved with this, um, time to decompress. Yeah, it's, it's, it can be tough. So, Can we so, talk a little bit about yeah, that?
1: So, so Fox, is, is that part of mental health first aid? Are you are you teaching the officers as well how to how to care for themselves?
3: It's actually a growing part of some of the teaching at the academy for new recruits, as well as one of the concepts of having embedded mental health folks within the barracks is that, you know, we're contagious to each other and we influence each other, you know. You sit around a dining room table, one person yawns, everyone else starts to yawn. You know, one person sits like this, everyone starts to sit like this. You know, you know, you have all those kind of we respond and and, and react to each other. Uh, and so, you know, there were some concerns of folks that said, geez, will, you know, these mental health folks or these embedded folks become like little police, you know, kind of thing. And what we're actually seeing is kind of it's actually the other way. Where the influence is, you know, that the the troopers are seeing. Oh, I really like how you handle that. That's a really different way of handling it. And they're able to talk with someone who's kind of trained to be emotionally supportive when they've just dealt with, you know, a, a motor vehicle accident that had a you know death involved, and they're having to deal with that, or you know, they're at a fire and they've you know a child has you know has died, and the trauma of that. Uh, and so, so the embedded folks kind of passively in that sense, help in that sense. But we have a very strong uh, MAT team, member assistance team. One of our uh, embedded workers has actually been a part of the member assistance team for probably close to 10 years now where we do debriefings and, you know, things of that sort with uh, with troopers after traumatic events. Um, so that's a, a really huge piece right now, because as the chief mentioned, recruitment and retention are really difficult right now. And so we have to focus on helping folks really understand here are the potential impacts and here are the warning signs that hey, you might be a little bit more than just like it was a bad day, you know, kind, kind of stuff. And we're also doing that for our embedded workers because, you know, here here come folks who are not going to the police academy, more focused on the mental health end of things, if you will, but they're out there experiencing, seeing and witnessing the same things that the the officers and troopers are. And so it's really important for us if we want to try and maintain them and keep this program going that they, too have, you know, exposure to and and training and education around vicarious traumatization and, you know, things of that sort. So, you know, it's definitely a, a big part of what we're doing still.
0: Mm-hmm. Chief, are you starting to see the officers talk more openly about how they're feeling and and when there's a traumatic situation? I you know, I feel deeply for those that at the Duxbury Fire Department who, you know, were the first on scene. Are first responders getting, A, the services they need, and B, are they not simply swallowing it? I'm fine. I'm fine, Chief. It's good.
4: I think that was the old way. Yeah. was uh, nobody wanted to admit that they may uh, need some help or want somebody to talk to. But we make it mandatory. Yeah. So they have no choice in the men. And we also have it split up so that there are uh, the patrolmen go um to the critical stress debriefing with just the patrolman and then the supervisors will go individually so that the patrolman will feel more comfortable speaking at the uh, debriefing when there's not a supervisor there uh, to maybe judge them but uh this has become more and more common but i think there's a lot more that needs to be done besides you know the critical stress, stress debriefing besides the training besides the employee assistance program i mean i i think that uh Officers work an awful lot of hours, and they don't get enough time off. Uh, the fire department works nine days a month, um, so there is time to decompress uh, in between uh, shifts. I, I think that um, time off and away from the job uh, it would be a good thing for them. I think you know uh, physical fitness incentives you know would be a good thing for them. We have that here in Marshfield, so anything that would be you know health and wellness uh, for the officers I think is important, and we need to put we need to invest in uh, because there are uh, officers that do get um disability retirements for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, that that is pretty common. Um, it's not just, you know, the shoulder injury or, or or the you know the bad knee. So you know the, the real stuff that they're seeing, the traumatic events that you know, it's it, it routinely see suicides, homicides, terrible car accidents, domestic violence, rapes. Uh, sexual assaults. I mean, this stuff. We see the worst stuff in society, day in and day out. And you know, they they take that home with them, um, and it builds up after a period of time. And uh, you know, you know, police officers are only human. So I think we we should be investing in them and do everything we can for their their health and wellness.
1: So Fox, with with that in mind, do do you find that police who have suffered witnessing these traumas that chief is talking about do they shut themselves off do they like put up a wall so that they are not as feeling
3: yeah i think i think the chief said it right that's kind of the old school fashion you know i think as we're seeing new recruits come in what i love seeing is seeing the you know the colonel from the state police coming to the academy and addressing each class and talking about how, yeah, if you're not doing okay, you need to say something you know if you think one of your partners is not doing okay, you need to say something you know the you know, the you know see something say something, do something isn't just about like what people are doing out there that are bad it's it's also like keep tabs on your brothers and your sisters uh, and what's going on and that this isn't a closed shop this isn't a you know kind of thing where, oh you you you're you're struggling or you need help from a, a counselor or something of that sort you're less than that's that's really not seen that way anymore i think i think the new recruits they'll come in that i think everyone thinks that way like i can do this i can handle it but then some of the the more seasoned folks say yeah, not so much. You need to be able to do this. You, you know, it's it's imperative. You know, Joe, you know me well enough to know that I hate the word "need." You know, it, it's a it's a big trigger, but it it's that kind of thing where it's like, no, you kind of need to be able to do this if you want to survive in this in this kind of work environment. Uh, good you I was just
4: gonna say, you need to help yourself first. Before you can help anyone else, so if the yep. officer isn't in the right frame of mind, uh, he's not going to be able to help anybody else, he or she. Uh, right. It's like uh, when you're on the airplane and the oxygen mask comes down, they exactly. tell you to put that on first, put it on yourself first, because you can't help anybody if you're not helping yourself first.
3: Right. And it seems it seems illogical, you know, just like you're on the plane, every parent is going, oh, "I'm putting the mask on my kid," you know that you know it's that kind of thinking. It seems illogical, but it's really very true. If you're not taking care of yourself, and we say this in, in mental health, you say this in addictions, you say this in law enforcement. As a provider, if you can't provide support, services, etc., if your own house isn't kind of in order.
1: Right. Uh, and the two the, rules that I'd say, you know, never worry alone. Right. And the therapist must survive. Chief, I wanted to ask about the officers. The big elephant
0: in the room is that there's a huge stigma around mental health, covid opened up the dialogue wide open, opened the door for people to talk, which gives other people the ability to talk, which gives other people the ability to talk. And it becomes a wonderful contagion where people are feeling a lot better about it. But in policing, is is there a, well, I don't want to say this because they're going to write it down and they're going to put it in my file. Is there
4: that? Well, yeah, you, you got to remember that the people that, you know, the majority of people that go into policing are type A, strong personalities, alpha type people, And uh, they don't want to uh, admit to any type of a weakness, Uh, you know, especially amongst their peers or or to their bosses. So, uh, yeah, I think they're, um, you know, that's the stigma needs to be shaken because what's happening is police officers are repeatedly going to traumatic events. Uh, They're working uh, terrible hours, uh, long hours. They're dealing with irate people. And this just continues to build up. That's not the type of police officer that you want responding to your house. You want somebody that's calm that can de-escalate and, and handle the situation, but they need to take care of themselves first, and that stigma needs to be broken. And uh, I think that um, it is slowly going that way, and uh, people are starting to open up. Uh, but there is that fear of: if I say the wrong thing, are they going to take my uh, gun permit away? Are they going to put me on desk duty? Um, is this going to be in my uh, my folder if I if I'm sued in this uh, some type of uh, you know, uh, records requests, some type of discovery from lawyers, you know, this, you know there is a certain amount of fear uh, besides amongst um, being looked at as weak by their peers.
0: Is there a solution to that? Is there a way to have a second file, if you will, that is not uh, um, open to discovery?
4: You know, that's, that's a, it's a good question. But, um, you know, if it's considered medical, uh, it would be exempt from any type of public records request. But if it's if it has anything to do with any type of discipline or any type of issue that resulted, what if in... they're
0: what if they're out on they break their arm in a in a incident uh, on a call, right? Like they're out on leave, they're out on medical leave. They're, there's a traumatic situation, and they need to take a couple weeks off. Like what what's the difference?
4: Right. Well, I, I think that when you're talking about a physical injury, as opposed to a, I don't want to call it a mental injury. I think Dr. Joe Morning Fox would be able to better explain it, but. Uh, when you're talking about any type of mental health and you're talking about wearing a badge, I think that there's a concern. The offices
3: would have a concern.
1: Fox, do you want to comment on that? I think,
3: you know, to, to answer kind of, bluntly Mark's question around. So what do we do about it? Or how do we change it? I think chief's doing it. It. Yeah, I'm not a big fan necessarily of always saying like, you know, top down kind of thing. But the leadership really has to support that the leadership has to walk that walk and talk that talk. And so having the chief, you know, talk about it, as this is a norm, this is something we all deal with, to put it in, in not the greatest words, whether you have a broken arm or a broken, broken brain right now, the way I've always talked about it with other folks is, you know, when folks are like, I should be able to deal with this, you know, it asks them, it's like, if you have your appendix, and it's, it needs to be taken out, do you say I, I, I should just be able to deal with it? <laughs>
4: it's
3: Like, well, well, no, I would see a doctor. OK, so why okay. is that any different than, you know, a, a trauma response, depression, anxiety, whatever? And so the chief does it. He walks the walk and talks to talk. Having our colonel, you know, address the the cadets at, at the academy um, and talking to the shift commanders, barrack commanders, station commanders, etc., about this and that, you know, this is not how we operate and, you know, we need to you know, support each other, take care of ourselves, all those kind of things. That's it's it's changes that changing that culture happens from from the top like that.
4: I, can I just add to that? Please, uh, th- Thank you for that. I, I agree. I agree with you. But thank you. I think one of the things that has assisted me and I think it would assist every single police officer is uh, the training and the experience that I received as a social worker. Uh, prior to uh, becoming a police officer. um, There's a lieutenant and a detective on our job that were social workers uh, for the Department of Social Services, um, the same organization that I work for, and we learned so much um, in such a short period of time, and it was such a valuable experience and education that aids us every day uh, in dealing with the public, and I think there should be that training component uh, incorporated into the police academies that would assist the officers, but in turn, that would enable the officers to be armed with that information to be able to assist the community better. And um, I just think that that was uh, really important. I, I,
1: I completely agree. I mean, the, the more we can understand the perspective of the people that were trying to help, the people that were calling, that they're calling for help. You know, the, I think, I'd like to think that the idea of of having to be a soldier in armor all the time is outdated because what does armor do it separates you from the rest of the world let's let's try to bring those barriers down a bit so is that part of what embedded mental health is it's not it's it's helping the whole community including the officers yeah is that fair to say yeah.
3: and it's just trying to you know take take off some of the layers of armor uh if you will being a bit more vulnerable a bit more human uh, response and uh and having that and i think you know and then it's you know you're changing that culture you know that's that's really what we're what we're really trying to do here in vermont is paradigms are like icebergs they don't change course very quickly but i think that's that's what we're doing you know is that the paradigm here is shifting there's momentum to continue the shift we've got more grant money coming in you know as i mentioned we have you know basically one embedded person in each barrack by the end of this legislative session. We're hoping to have the funds to, to double that, if not more. And then, you know, we're, we're also looking at how do we disengage law enforcement from some of, the, some of the calls that it's really not something that needs an armed
1: law enforcement response for. Um, you were talking a bit about that off air, about developing other responses. So we've got a, a minute or so before we get to our two questions. Tell us a little bit about that, Fox.
3: So just very briefly, one of the things we're looking at is that, you know, there are some models out there in different parts of the country, as well as in other countries, that when 911 is called, dispatch is trained to have kind of some decision trees, you know, right now dispatch has decision trees for fire, EMS, you know, law enforcement, but adding kind of a a mental health, if you will, part of that decision tree. And they're doing programs like this in other places where the response team is maybe a social worker and an EMT, or a social worker and a person uh, who's a peer or a person with lived experience. Uh, and, you know, they respond to the suicidal subject to, you know, the, the person acting bizarrely walking in the road, you know, um, homelessness uh, issues, things of that sort. And so just trying to change how we think about responding.
0: Is the, yeah. is the future model a merger almost or a joint venture between policing and mental health departments? Because one of the things I was thinking about as we were talking is that comfort, that ability to talk to the non-police officer. There's no Miranda warning there, right? They, what they say, they may not be incriminated, right? If you have those separate
3: departments. Yeah, I mean, I, I see, I see stuff like that. There's, it's happening in other states already, and I think that's a direction that that we're moving towards. You know, it's if it's non criminal activity and it's more about the community caretaking aspect yeah. of law enforcement, then the the questions looking at that. What are the criteria that we need? You know, an, an armed law enforcement response for the community caretaking aspects, and can some of those responses be taken over by or you know enacted upon by by others? Uh, but
0: but yet a police officer, if they if they witness some form of a crime, whether it's a misdemeanor or otherwise, they have to act upon that. So if they don't see it, it you know, and we're and we're helping the community, does that? solve for a lot of nuisance too. What's well,
3: the hope is that we're actually trying to get at that root of the problem and trying to influence behavior uh, as opposed to issue a citation. Don't do this again. Uh, citation ends up in the circular file, you know, underneath the kitchen sink and law enforcement finds them out there, themselves out there next week with the same same citation as opposed to trying to get the root and really influence that behavior
1: so i'm, I'm wondering with with that in mind we're coming towards the end of the show the i am approach has two truths the first because the four domains home social biological and ic interact a small change can have a big effect we don't need to change everything i'm going to start with you fox and then go to you chief fox what small change can you recommend to our listeners based on our topic for tonight Yeah,
3: you know, you'll you'll think i'm just I'm just trying to pat your back, Joe. But this is something that I, I I do trainings every week, and I never end a training without talking about the amazing impact that treating other people with respect has. Yeah. Uh, and that the the way our biology works and our brains work, that it's nearly physically impossible uh, for an individual to 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 get physically aggressive towards someone who's treating them with respect. You can give someone the worst news, tell them I'm arresting them, you know, whatever it is, or I'm, I'm going to do a section 12 and they're going to the hospital and they don't want to, I can say all the bad things I want, but if I do it in, in a respectful fashion, respect what they value, uh, I don't have to agree with them or any of that sort, but if I respect what they value and I respect them as a human being, it makes my interaction better. It, you know, so, so what small change for everyone else? Like, You want to make your life better? Treat other people with respect. Your life will be better.
1: That's right. That's right. Respect leads to value. Value leads to trust. We can remind someone of value. It increases your own. Chief, what small change can you recommend to our listeners?
4: Well, I know that over the last couple of years, our mental uh, health-related calls for service have gone, they've skyrocketed. So my advice, my little bit of advice would be for people out there that are listening to check in on their neighbors, their family, their friends. Make sure they're doing okay. Uh, Look for those red flags. Make sure that they know that uh, the information is out there, that they can dial 988. Uh, And if they're concerned about somebody, uh, report it so that the uh, proper people can look into the matter and uh, get the uh, attention and uh, the resources that that person might need uh, before it actually turns into a real crisis. Yeah. So some of the stuff, you know, um, I know that there's a term, if it's predictable, it's preventable, you know, to a certain extent. Uh, but if we can look out for one another and be proactive, I don't think there's any matrix that would ever be available to determine how many
1: lives we may save. Much more important to be proactive than reactive, right, Mark Stiles? Mark's praise. Amen. The second truth of the I am, everyone's interested in what you think or feel about them. And you know, it has an effect on their brain, just as Morning Fox is saying it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. So with that in mind, you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. I'm going to start with you, Chief. Chief Phil Tavares, what kind of influence do you want to be?
4: A positive influence, no matter what's going on, because things can always get worse. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to be a positive influence uh, upon everyone I do.
1: And I will tell you that from my point of view, you absolutely are. Thank you. Morning Fox. You control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Morning Fox, who's creating this program up there in Vermont. What kind of influence do you want to be? I hope
3: that when people interact with me, the the end result, the influence that I have on them is that they think critically, continue to think critically. Even going on like what the chief was talking about, you know, 988-911, see someone struggling think critically you know is this is this a safety issue is this something that you know can i be helpful here or is this above my stuff and i need to bring in someone else should i bring in mental health for this should i bring in law enforcement for this think critically of it and not just be reactive you know i think I think people, we, we, we get too reactive, we're in our in our bubbles, in our lives, something happens corner of our eye, oh my gosh, and we react, as opposed to take that step, breathe, think about it, and then let's decide what to do.
1: My phrase with that, I agree, is, is it's much more important to be reflective than reflexive. And of course, keep it frontal. Don't go limbic. Exactly. Folks, thanks so much for this really fantastic discussion on rethinking policing here in the United States. Much appreciated, guys. You're very welcome. Thank you. See you all next week on the
0: Dr. Joe Show. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, Feel free to shoot me an email at mstiles at stiles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at stiles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Title. Secure title helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Secure title. S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business the views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent please seek legal financial or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein